assembling with us this morning to offer praise and adoration to our great and good God, our Father in heaven. I don't know if it was uh, John's intention this morning in leading us in singing, but I think he has done a good job in stretching our voices. As Anna was way up here at the top of the house, I'm kind of down here uh, dragging bottom trying to sing bass. But some really good songs for us to sing this morning to think about our great God and to think about all that he has, has done for us. I hope that our time and study of God's word this morning will stretch our minds, that we will learn something about God or at least be reminded about things that we know about him and the kind of people that he has called us to be and his son Jesus Christ and will help us in that endeavor to live like him again as is our our focus, our theme this year as a congregation to be more like Jesus. That should be our goal. That should be our desire. Uh, that should be our expectation for ourselves as we live from day to day and as time goes on and as we grow, uh, as life moves on, that we can be more and more like Jesus. I might say before we begin our lesson this morning, to as, as I thought about uh, Kurt's um, uh, comments before we contributed uh, of the blessings that God has given us to the work that this congregation is doing to say thank you uh, to this congregation for your uh, financial support of me and my family and allowing me to do the work that I do. Uh, I don't know that I have uh, told you that in about the year or so that we have been here. And I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that, that uh, on uh, January the 8th was uh, one year when I I stepped into the pulpit to um, work with you as, as an evangelist, as a gospel preacher. Uh, but my mind was on other things on that particular lesson, but just to say thank you for all the, the kindnesses that you have already shown to me and my family so far, uh, for the love that you have shown to each one of us and, and so many of you making us feel like we are a part of this family of God here at Fairview Park. Uh, it is a blessing for us, and uh, we're still getting to know everyone. And that will be the case as long as we are here, that those hopefully relationships uh, in Christ will grow richer and stronger as time goes by. But I'm doing what I love. I really am. And I appreciate you and all of the encouragement that you have uh, given to me and to my family over this past year. And uh, looking forward to this, this year and many years to come with us working together in, in the kingdom of God. Motivation, I believe, is a key ingredient for successful living. It really is, I think, a driving force that pushes us to do right and pushes us maybe to do things that we would not normally do, things that might be uncomfortable for us. And it really is the thing that drives us to do what is right from the time that we can reason and understand until the time that we do not walk in this world anymore. A child often is motivated to clean his room. Maybe he's not just naturally a clean person. Maybe he doesn't care if he lives in a messy environment. But a child often is motivated to clean his room because he knows if he doesn't do that, his parents are going to punish him in some way. They have laid down the ground rules and there will be some kind of punishment. And so that is a motivation. A student, as some in the audience are in school right now, a student often is motivated to study hard, maybe 
to complete the homework assignments that the teacher or professor has given to him or her to write papers. Maybe they don't enjoy writing or to do some kind of project because they are motivated maybe to get a good grade in that class. Perhaps they are motivated to get a diploma so that they can get a degree so that they can get a job and support themselves or their family. An employee is often motivated to do a good job so that his employer is pleased and maybe he is looking or hoping that he will get a raise in salary or he's hoping for a promotion or at least hoping for a pat on the back and saying, good job, well done, or something like that. And so motivation, I would say to you at the beginning of our lesson this morning, is a key ingredient for successful living. As I have said to you the last couple of weeks, at least kind of a mini theme this year is going to be thinking about some current moral issues. And we're going to look at some specific things, some uh, things, at least in my list, and things that the elders and I have talked about in addressing. Some of those things, a lot of those matters I, I have preached on before. Sometimes it's been quite a few years since I've addressed those. Some of those things I really have not, at least given a whole lesson to those things. But before we do that, before we address some specific current moral issues this year, I want us to first consider our motivation for right living. As we are going to think this year about a number of things, as we may think about addictions of all kinds, as we may think about alcohol addictions or drug addictions, as we think about just the materialistic mindset that our world is in right now and the environment in which we live, that our life really consists of the things that we have, even though Jesus says otherwise. As we think about uh, uh, sexual issues that we face, moral issues, as we think about transgenderism or as we think about homosexuality or we think about abortion or all number of things, not to just look at those things and to say this is just kind of keeping a law, although we are going to look at God's laws and principles and truths in those matters, but to think about why we as Christians, what should motivate us to do what God has said, to live in a way that pleases God or not to do some things that he doesn't want us to do because he knows they're not for our good. They don't align with who God is. To think back, hopefully we can over the course of this year, and I think a, a number of these lessons may run into the next year. But what's our motivation for right living? So the passage that our brother Don has already read for us this morning in Titus chapter 2, let's go back and read that very quickly. Titus 2, beginning at verse 11. Paul writes here again, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I want you to notice just in the context before we get into the particulars of what Paul says in this text, I want you to think back to the beginning of Titus chapter 2. Basically, the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2, Paul is addressing uh, different groups of people that are Christians, maybe different groups of people in the churches here in Crete that, that the evangelist Titus is working with. But he gives some specific instructions, first of all, to older men, then to older women, to younger women, and then to younger men. And he's talking about the different stations or roles or places that we find ourselves in life. And he basically says in those first 10 verses, wherever we are in life, whether we're young or old or male or female, whether we are slave or master, as he addresses at the end of that section, 
that we all have a place in this world. And in that place as a child of God, as a follower of Christ, we must all live in the right way. We must all live in a way that pleases God. We must be people who are living righteously in whatever role we are in in life. And then in chapter 3, and we'll read a few verses from this chapter a little bit later in our lesson this morning, but especially verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul goes on there to describe our life in Christ. In verse 3, he reminded these Christians of who they were before they came to Christ. But then verses 1 and 2, he says, this is who you are now in Christ. And as a Christian, you are to live in a certain way. You are to be a certain kind of person. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 talks about how we are to live, right living. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 talks about right living. And sandwiched in the middle of all of those instructions about right living is our passage for this morning, chapter 2 of the book of Titus, verses 11 through 14. And I believe that this gives us the why. I found this PowerPoint the other day. It was already at least this part of it that asked this question, what is your why? And I, I wish I had chosen that as a sermon title really this morning, because I think that is a good question. It gets to the heart, in my mind, of what the Apostle Paul is addressing in this section of Scripture. We want to think about the why for right living. But before we discuss the why, I want us to look for just a few moments at the what. What does it mean when we say right living or righteous living? What are we talking about? Well, at least in this context, I think there are two things that the Apostle Paul mentions here at verse 12. When he tells us there at verse 11 that the grace of God appear, bringing salvation to all men, and it is instructing us, first of all, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. The Apostle Paul, of course, in using this kind of language, was uh, this is not the only place in Scripture. He is not the only uh, New Testament writer that uses this kind of language. That we as followers of Christ, we must be people who are denying ourselves some things. We as Americans in 21st century America, we don't like to think about that, that concept of denial, do we? I mean, most of us, I'd say for our society as a whole, we're all into what, what can I get? You know, how can I please myself? I, I want everything that there possibly could be that I could possibly afford and even things that I can't afford. I want all of that and the more I have of the world, the better off I am, the more successful I am. But of course, we remember the words of Jesus in Luke 9, 23 and elsewhere that if we're going to truly be followers of him, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him. So Peter or Paul rather writes here that we must deny ourselves some things, ungodliness, he says, and worldly desire. This, this kind of thought is found throughout the New Testament. And wants to look at what a couple of other writers said about this. First of all, James, in James chapter 4 at verse 4, James begins this particular thought back at verse 1 of the chapter by asking a couple of questions. He says there at verse 1, What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? I think we, we all know that if we have lived long enough in this life, that we understand there is a battle going on inside ourselves between the flesh and the spirit. And yes, if we are Christians, we have help. We have God's help. We have the strength that, that Christ can give us in which we can do all things, as Paul wrote. But there's still this battle that is going on in our mind and in our life. And so in that context, James asks another question at verse 4. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't know how the uh, how James could be any plainer there in saying that we cannot please God in the world simultaneously. We have to make a choice, as Jesus said to us in the Sermon on the Mount. We have to choose if we're going to love God or we're going to love wealth. If we're going to love our life in Christ, which ends in eternal life, or we're going to love our life here now in this world, that we cannot do both at the same time. We cannot please God in the world at the same time. We must deny ourselves ungodliness and worldly desires. And then the Apostle John writes about this in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. He says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. Kind of interesting in a book that he has been talking to us about love over and over again and talking to us about the love of God. He says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives or abides forever. We cannot, John says, just as James very plainly and I think very boldly stated in James 4 and verse 4 that we can't please God in the world at the same time. Here is John stating very boldly, very matter-of-factly that we cannot love the world. I think he's saying we can't love the planet on which we are living. But he's saying that we cannot love the standards of the world. We cannot love the things that the world loves. Because if we do, he makes it very clear here at verse 17. If we love the world and the things in the world, the love of God, which again John repeatedly is emphasizing in this epistle, is not in us. This certainly is not an easy way to live, is it? This is not the broad way that everyone around us seems to be walking that Jesus again spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. This is, at least from a worldly perspective, a very difficult way to live, a very demanding way to live. And I believe this is why the Apostle Paul, coming back to our text in Titus chapter 2, was writing to Titus and to the Christians on the island of Crete and to us and saying that we must deny these things, things that so much of the world is not denying themselves things, in fact, that the world as a whole is embracing. As we look at our own lives, we may not be people who are necessarily involved in immoral activities, but even more than that, in these couple of verses, and especially what John says to us here in 1 John 2, we cannot, as Christians, as followers of Christ, have a mindset that is focused upon this world. Rather, we must be people who are living by a different standard. And we have different goals and we have different values than the world around us does. And the second part of how we must live here in this text in Titus 2 and verse 12 is more on the positive side. So the negative side of that is we have to deny ourselves the world and living like the world. But the positive side of that is we must live in a certain way. We must live like Christ. We must live sensibly, righteously, and godly, or as some of the older translations said, soberly righteously and godly. The word sensibly here is the idea of soberness. It's, it's the idea of discreetness or being sound in our mind. It's also the idea of living a life that is under our control, that we're living a self-controlled life, that we're not out of control, that, that we have just lost all of our inhibitions and, and whatever comes down the pipe that appeals to us and attracts us, that that's the way we go But we are living under control, under the control of God. It's the idea of showing moderation within our life. 
The word righteously here, I think we probably all understand that, but it's the idea of, of doing or living in a way that is just before God, of showing fairness to other people. It's also the idea of being holy or set apart for God and the idea of, of being innocent before God. The word godly is the talking about respect or reverence for God, for who He is and what He has said. If we are godly people, we are trying to be devoted to Him. We again have set ourselves apart to accomplish His will in our life. An old gospel preacher, I think this was Bill Hall. I don't know if any of you know him, has preached much of his life in Alabama, brother Sewell Hall. But he said a long time ago, I think when I was first started preaching, he made this observation about uh, th this particular uh, word about godly. He said, in his mind, it is living with an awareness of God. And I, I kind of like that. <laughs> that. That we are living knowing that God exists, knowing that God is watching us, not, and not so much from a negative perspective that God is like watching us, looking down upon us from heaven here on earth, and he's just waiting for us to mess up, waiting for us to sin so he can zap us, and, and that's it. We don't have any other opportunities. But from the perspective of a father watching us, and caring for us and looking out for our best interests, that we're always living with an awareness of God and who He is. The Apostle Paul states in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, that we have to live this way, the way in which he is describing here in Titus 2. We have to live soberly or sensibly, righteously, and godly. We have to live that way in this present age. We, we don't get to choose when we live in this world, do we? You know, some of us might say, well, I wish I could go back and live in the early 1900s or I wish I could go back to the first century. And I wish I would have lived when Jesus was walking here upon the earth and, and listened to all of his teaching and seen all of those miracles for myself and asked Jesus some questions that are on my mind that I really want to know the answers to. But we don't have the luxury of picking where, where we live or when we live in this world. And so the Apostle Paul is saying here in Titus 2 and verse 12, to these Christians, to us, we have to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And Paul describes it here in Philippians 2, 14 through 16. It's an, it's an age, our age is like Paul's age. It's an age of crookedness. It is an age of perverseness. And unfortunately, we're, we're going to talk about some of those things that are going on in our world. And let me just say, because I've had a few uh, parents with young kids uh, express some concerns about those things, from my standpoint as a preacher, I'm not going to get too detailed or too graphic. I'm not going to be crude about those lessons, but to try to give as much detail as I can so that we understand what we're talking about and not to try to skirt any issues. So I would solicit your prayers as I present these lessons. But that's the kind of world that we're living in, unfortunately. Again, this is very difficult to do, but this is what God has called us to do, that we are to deny ourselves ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this crooked and perverse generation. But why are we to do that? What, what is it that motivates us to live this countercultural life, to deny ourselves the world and to live for the world to come, to live for that eternal life with God? There are three motivations, I believe, that the Apostle Paul gives us here in this text. I'm not claiming or suggesting to you that these are the only three motivations, even from Scripture, 
for right living. But these are three that Paul mentions that we're going to talk about for a few moments. The first motivation is to be for us as Christians the grace of God. Notice here, if you're not in that passage, to turn back to Titus chapter 2 at verse 11. And this is where Paul begins this thought. Again, after saying in verses 1 through 10, wherever you are in life, whatever station you find yourself in, you are to live as a Christian. But he's telling us why. For, he says, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Paul is beginning, it seems to me, the entire thought of verses 11 through 14 with this grand thought, first of all, about God's grace. And in doing so, I believe he is showing us and showing that audience the importance of grace. The importance of us knowing about God's grace, the importance of us really understanding God's grace, at least as much as is possible for us in this body, in this mind, in this world. But he is pointing out to these Christians and to us that the grace of God really is the foundation, if you will. It is the starting point for right living. If we just take the grace of God out of the picture, what motivation really is there for us to live in a right way? It would just be a lot easier again for us to go with the flow and live like everybody else around us. But God's grace must be the motivation for that. So think about a couple of questions with me concerning the grace of God. Number one, when did God, what rather did God's grace do for us? Well, Paul makes it very clear here, very succinct in verse 11, that the grace of God has appeared, depending upon what translation you're reading from, it may say that the grace of God has appeared to all, bringing salvation. As the New American Standard says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, whichever way it should be. I think the point is the same, that God's grace brought salvation to us. Staying here in, in the book of uh, P, uh, Titus, in Titus chapter 3, notice beginning at verse 4. Again, Paul is just tying this whole section together, I think very beautifully uh, for us to see the big picture. Verse 4 of Titus 3, he says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul wants these brethren and us to understand in no uncertain terms that we are made right, we are justified with God, as he says here in this text, by his grace. It is not in and of ourselves, we're not justified before God or made right before Him because we've done all of these good works, even though we are to be people, as he even says later on in this text in Ephesians 2 and other places. We are His workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. But that's not the basis of our salvation, is not our good works. He makes it clear here, it is God. It is God's grace that has justified us if God's grace has been applied to us through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is the richness of God's mercy. It is the greatness of God's kindness toward us. And he uses and, and talks about all of those characteristics of God here in this one text. And so without God's gift of salvation, we could not be saved. There is nothing that we could do apart from the grace of God that would save us, that would bring salvation to us. So that's one point I think he is trying to stress here, but also notice that he says to us back in our text, 
not only did the grace of God appear bringing salvation to all men, but the grace of God has appeared instructing us, verse 12. The grace of God, Paul says, clearly shows us how to live. The grace of God, he says, appeared to all people, to all mankind. I want you to notice here a couple of verses in Titus chapter 3 at verse 3. He says, for once we also, uh, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and even in envy, hateful, hating one another. And then down at verse 8, he says, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. That the grace of God showed us. How did God's grace appear? Is really the question I want you to think about for just a minute. And I believe, at least in this text, Paul is making very clear that the grace of God appeared in its ultimate form, in its most complete form, in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth, he showed us the grace of God. Didn't the Apostle John, in beginning his great gospel about the life of Jesus Christ in John chapter 1, tells us a couple of times there that we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ claimed there later on in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth. And Jesus is the manifestation of God's grace in its most complete form. And so that ought to teach us, and really is a good segue into our second motivation for right living, and that is the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice what the apostle wrote here at verse 14. He says about our Savior Jesus Christ back at the end of verse 13, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We, we all know this, but sometimes we forget it. And we all need reminders of this, myself included. That Jesus Christ came to this world, he took on flesh, he lived as a man, he experienced temptation, he experienced grief, he experienced pain, he experienced the human condition except without sin. But Jesus willingly and joyfully went to the cross and he died for you and for me. And why did he do that? He died for my benefit, didn't he? He died on my behalf as the scriptures tell us. And so we can think about that question at least as Paul answers that question or addresses it here in this text about why did Jesus die? I realize as you look through the Bible, you'll find a lot of, of reasons why Christ died. But I want you to just think about what Paul says here in this text. Number one, he says here at verse 14, to redeem us from sin. We were all enslaved to sin. Slave was our master. And to redeem us from sin, number two, to purify us, to be his special people. He has washed us and cleansed us and made us his pure people. Number three, to make us zealous or eager for good works. And so, brothers and sisters, when you are tempted to sin, I believe what Paul is saying to these Christians and to us is, we in those times in life and every time, but especially those times when we are tempted to sin, we need to think back to the cross. We need to look with the eye of faith back to the cross of Jesus Christ. We need to do what we've already sung about this morning. Lead me to Calvary. And remember what Jesus has done for each one of us. Brothers and sisters, when you are tempted, 
or tired rather of doing right. You're just worn out in trying to live a right life because the pressures and the pull of the world is so great in your life. And you're just worn out. You're exhausted in doing that. And sometimes you may think to yourself, what's the use in, in living this way? Why, why am I denying myself all these things that my flesh really wants to engage in? Do you ever think back to the cross and reflect on the death of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you? I believe this is exactly why God instructs us in his word that we need to do what we have done this morning. That we need to remember our Lord and Savior Jesus on the first day of the week, but we need to do that every day. And especially in the times in our life when we are weak. You remember, I'm sure, what the the Hebrews writer said about this and really the motivation that those Hebrew Christians that were at least being tempted to fall away from Jesus, to abandon him and following him and just go back to being a Jew or go back to living in the world. After he's given us that great chapter here in Hebrews chapter 11 of all the faithful that have gone before us, here's his conclusion to that, at least one conclusion in Hebrews 12 at verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer realizes, I mean, I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We kind of discussed that a little bit in John's class this morning. Whoever it is, it's, it's a man, it's a person, a human being just like me, just like you who has faced temptation and faced struggles and faced doubts with their faith in Christ. And he is saying to all of us, so that we don't grow weary and lose heart, so that we don't make the decision, we're just going to chunk Jesus Christ and go back to living like the world. We need to look to Jesus, not just a passing glance, but we need to consider him. We need to focus our eyes and our mind upon him. And so in all of life, the answer, I think, is to look to Jesus. And I believe that's what Paul is trying to remind these Christians in Crete here in Titus 2. The third and final motivation for right living that we will think about this morning is the coming of Christ. Notice here in verse 13, he says, again, God's grace has appeared to us. It has taught us to live in a certain way and be a certain kind of people. He says in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That word hope is such a great word. It's it's a little bitty word, four-letter word, but a great word. Someone has defined hope as confident expectation. Someone else has said about hope that hope is desire plus expectation. And I like both of those definitions. Just a thought that it puts into my mind that you have to have confidence (laughs) That our faith, again, going back to John's Sunday morning class, our faith is not a blind faith. Our our faith is built upon evidence that we see from God's word of those that have lived before us and what has been recorded for us. It is a confident expectation, and we expect that there is something after this earthly life. 
not because we have been so good, again, what the passage we just read in Titus chapter 3, but because God is good, because God has shown His grace and, and poured out His mercy and His kindness and His love on us through His Son, Jesus Christ, we have a desire plus an expectation. It is, hope is, an anticipation and a longing for some future event to occur. And so the hope of something better sometimes, oftentimes, I've found in my own life, is the only thing that gets us through the trials of life. Hope of knowing that this life is not all that there is, that Christ and God have not abandoned us, have left us alone here to just live out this life on earth and then we die and that's it. But to know that they love us so much that Christ is going to come again. That hope of knowing that is sometimes the only thing that gets us through the trials of life or gets us through the weaknesses of the flesh when we think, I don't want to face this temptation again. I've already stood up to Satan and said no to him and I'm tired. Sometimes that hope of knowing that Christ is coming again is what gets us through the weakness of our flesh. It is what gives us the power to live as a Christian. The Apostle Paul, of course, wrote a lot about hope. And as we close this morning, just to reference a couple of those passages, such beautiful words at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, beginning... Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. There's that phrase again. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our mind, beloved brethren, must be upon Christ if we're going to be serious about right living. Our mind must be upon the grace that God has shown us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Our mind must be upon the death of our Lord and Savior. Our mind, at this point, must be upon His coming and our resurrection to eternal life. The, the passage, if you were here in the 9 o'clock session this morning, the last text I read from Philippians chapter 3, this was Paul's life. He wanted to experience resurrection to eternal life. And if our mind is there, as Paul goes on to write in chapter 5 at verse 9, he says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. If our mind truly is there on Christ and the grace of God and the death of Christ and the coming of Christ, and our resurrection, then I believe our motivation will be there to please Him as well. That it will always be our aim, our ambition, our goal to please Him whether we are living in this earthly body or whether we are at home with the Lord. And our mind will always be there. Our motivation will always be there to live righteously, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, even as we endure these numerous, what Paul describes as momentary light afflictions because we know it is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond anything that we can even comprehend. In a world where it is far too easy for us to do wrong, in a world where we don't really have to go looking for wrong, many times that wrong comes looking for us 
as we live in that kind of world, brothers and sisters, we all need some motivation to do what is right. And I believe that motivation is only found in God and in what He has done, what He has said, what He continues to do for us in our life, and even, yes, motivation in the promises of God of things He has promised that He will do in the future that is to come. What about you this morning? Are you motivated to live for Jesus? Are you motivated to live righteously? I hope I've given you from the Scripture some great motivations. There's lots of motivation that our world can offer to us. But those things in some way or another are passing. They're, they're fleeting. But what God offers us, the blessings, again, that, that Savior uh, helped us think about at the table this morning, all of the blessings that we have in Christ, those are all things that are eternal and will last forever. Do you know the right thing to do and you haven't done it yet? I hope this morning's sermon has given you the motivation, the why as to why you ought to live soberly, righteously, and godly. For those of us who are Christians and we're trying to do that every day in our life, I know it's hard. I know we get worn out. But hopefully this will give us a little charge this day and this week that we can go out and we can know why we're living the way that we do and other people can know why and they will ask us about that and we'll be ready to give an answer. As you think about your life, as you think about your condition before God, if you know that you're not right with Him, won't you take advantage of his grace and mercy and love this morning and come before this audience, confess your faith that Jesus is the Christ of God, repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ and come out as a new creation. We, we would love to see that happen this morning. We would be rejoicing. The angels in heaven would be rejoicing. God himself would be rejoicing. Won't you make that good decision this morning and respond to his invitation as we stand and as we sing?